previously on Storyological. <laughs> Who's the queen in this house? The mouse. Lick it, Justin Bieber. What? <laughs> <laughs> Can we call this episode Lick It, Justin Bieber? Yeah, it's the, my new catchphrase for season three. It's, <laughs> it's the season three is when you got to bring in the young child or the new catchphrase to keep things going. And, right. And we got it. Lick it, Justin I Bieber. I mean, in Buffy, they waited till season five to bring Dawn in. Yeah, really, you're supposed to wait much later than season three. Season three is desperation. <laughs> You've got to be really desperate. Season three is when we're supposed to graduate from high school. So along with the episode you're listening to right now, uh, presumably, if I did this right, yesterday, we put up the uh, interview that I did with Yukimi Ogawa. It's there on the website. You should go check it out. It's pretty stupendous. We're going to do it. We're going to do it? Yeah, yeah I'm going to do it. Okay. This is Storylogical. A podcast about amazing stories that we kind of like. I'm Chris Camerud. And I'm E.G. Kosh. My pick for season three, episode one of Storyological The Revenge <laughs> yeah. is Report on the Thing by Clarice Lyspector. Has there ever been a title more directly <laughs> aimed at my heart? <laughs> Then report on the thing. I don't think there has I been. I mean, the only way it could be closer is if it was a story made up entirely of lists. It could be. Do you remember at Clarion that a couple of our people made up a song, a theme song for me? <laughs> oh, yeah. Things and stuff. Yeah. Stuff and things. Things and stuff. Stuff and things. <laughs> so, uh, the version that we read was published on Vice, translated from Portuguese by Katrina Dodson. So, the report on the thing is a dark, spiraling meditation on time and presence and the ever-present kind of vigil that time passing has over your life and it's presented through the narrator's obsession with a sveglia clock and this obsession leads to the narrator thinking about things that are or are not in respect to this clock it's mm. kind of difficult for me to sum it up so i thought i would read a passage of it okay what page are we on? <laughs> <laughs> Chapter 1, verse 14. Yeah. You're just so thin and nothing happens to you. But you are the one who makes things happen. Happen to me, Sveglia. Happen to me. I am in need of a certain event of which I cannot speak. And bring me back to desire, which is the coil spring behind animal life. I do not want you for myself. I do not like being watched. And you are the only eye always open like an eye floating in space. You wish me no harm, but neither do you wish me good. Could I be getting that way too, without the feeling of love? Am I a thing? I know that I have little capacity to love. My capacity to love has been trampled too much, my God. All I have left is a flicker of desire. I need this to be strengthened, because it is not as you think that only death matters. To live, something you do not know about, because it is susceptible to rot. To live while rotting matters quite a bit. When I read that, and particularly when I read that out loud, it reminds me of um, reading passages from the Bible in church when I was a kid, which is something my mum would always make me do. And there was a sense sometimes that you could kind of get into the rhythm of what you were saying, and it becomes this kind of energy that propels you along as you're talking. And that's one of the things that attracted me first, reading this story. And it's not just the act and the rhythm of it but the kind of instructive quality of it the way she's telling us what we should be thinking what we should be doing the way life is she's breaking it down for us uh, and explaining albeit somewhat incomprehensibly for some of the story 
the way life works. Uh, there's a, a thing that a character said in the television show Angel, uh, and that character was a green demon who was the owner of a karaoke bar. Uh, and what he said was, now I can hold a note for a long time. Actually, I can hold a note forever, but eventually that's just noise. It's the change we're listening for, the note coming after and the one after that. That's what makes it music. And what I particularly adored when I was reading the story for the first time was how, how focused the story is on Sveglia, on the brand of alarm clock, on the alarm clock, on time, and the way it was focused on that clock, on that object next to the bed. It, it reminded me of the way Carmen Maria Machado, I think, talked about in a part of the interview that we did, where she said one of her things she did as a kid that she felt like was a superpower as a writer was just being able to stare at something until it escapes all proportion and becomes this otherworldly thing. If this story had functioned like a still life, the way a piece of art is a still life, where it's an image of a bunch of fruit on a table, and you as the viewer just look at that fruit and try to think of stuff, the story wouldn't work because stories don't work that well. way. Stories are much more like what you were saying with the Bible. It's much more about rhythm and incantation. And so the story enacts the experience of staring at a still life, of staring at something until it escapes all proportion and becomes something amazing because it's the movement, it's the staring at the clock, thinking about time as a thing, then thinking about, wait, am I a thing? What does it mean to be a thing? And then going on into the world, as you were saying, and comparing and contrasting everything as to whether or not it is this sort of thing or that sort of thing, at which point it becomes a kind of poetry. The rooster is Seveglia. The egg is pure Seveglia, but the egg only when whole, complete, white, its shell dry, completely oval. Inside it is life, wet life, but eating raw yolk is Seveglia. Do you want to see who Seveglia is? A football match. Whereas Pele is not. Why? Impossible to explain. <laughs> Impossible. Um, I think that that, that kind of, um, the rhythm it builds up, the way, the way it stares so deeply at the, these ideas and starts to unpick them it feels like it's a story that is chipping away at the kind of cliff face of the incomprehensibility of the passage of time the what face cliff face cliff face what i'm imagining is that you're stood at the bottom of this giant cliff and it's sheer and you know that is how difficult it is to think about the essence of being and time when you're stuck inside of our fleshy bodies but the this story starts to just feel like oh maybe there's a foothold maybe there's a handhold maybe I can start to make this ascent and I can feel the words dragging my attention towards these kind of unknowable unseeable ideas it reminded me of the silence in Doctor Who, you know, which is the, the aliens that you can never remember you've seen, except by carving a mark in your arm. You know, you have this sense that there is something there, something that your brain won't pay attention to. And that's what I feel like this story is trying to get us to do. It's trying to, it's trying to get us to look at existence, both in the minute and in the cosmic sense and and tap us on the shoulder and say this is what it means can you understand it the, you know i've explained it now to you a hundred times maybe you're just one step closer to understanding yeah 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 the personal and the cosmic 
I think, is a kind of miraculous relationship pulled off in this story. The way we're describing it, of this deeply subjective perspective, we are well immersed in the narrator's point of view and their obsession with time and the clock. It can seem both in that description, like it's very myopic, like we're stuck inside of a person and yet it's cosmic because we're thinking about time. But the thing that's a miracle to me, the thing that I feel like is what I always want a story like this to give birth to is to a, a personality, to a person and to their relationships with the world. Because in the story, we understand that this character has never actually seen the clock to which they refer to. It is on the bedside of someone else who they fight with, who they talk to, who could be a lover, though I'm not sure, who could be an aging parent who is about to die. So maybe that's why they're thinking about morality. In any case, in the story, in the foundation of it, is this relationship between the narrator and the owner of the object that they're thinking about. And the relationship between the narrator and the object is interesting, but also the relationship between the narrator and the person who owns the object and how that relationship impacts the way the narrator thinks about time, I found lovely. And it's another kind of movement, another kind of one note changing to the next, because there's the note of staring at a thing and thinking about it. And then the note switches and says something like these two things. And speaking of the clock, the narrator says, I would like its actual name to be Sveglia, but the owner of the clock wants its name to be Horatio. <laughs> Whatever, I, I don't know. That. That's amazing. <laughs> and then later, fights are Sveglia. Side note, awesome, sure, okay. And then it says, the narrator says, I just had one with the owner of the clock. I said, since you don't want to let me see Sveglia, describe its gears to me. Then she lost her temper, and that is Sveglia, and said that she had a lot of problems. Having problems is not Sveglia. So I tried to calm her down, and it was fine. I shall not call her tomorrow. I'll let her rest. And I'm like, awesome. Now there's a whole other person in this story that I thought was just going to be this meditation on time. And it mm -hmm. is, but there's life around it. It is a story so full of life, both in its ideas and in the people who she references, the, the stories of others that she tells. And then also inside of its sentences, each sentence sort of vibrates with, with energy. They seem pushed up against each other in such unusual ways uh, that you're constantly having to pause and adjust and consider. There is no skim reading this story. You have to, you have to take it slow, bite by bite. of any story that is worthwhile? Well, not if you put that... that tag on the end of it you're saying it's not a story that you can give divided attention to and expect to really understand even yeah one even on the element most surface. Of its surface yeah exactly and i think part of the reason i picked this story to be first in season three was it is a story i would never have even bothered to read five years ago and it's only through the study of writing, the study of reading, our discussions in Storyological that I feel I have gained the vocabulary and the tools to, to sit down and think about a story that is so unusual or uh, so different to the kind of um, expectations I had of story earlier in my life. Uh, and I picked it because... 
it's so exciting to me to see that my expectations of story are broadening. I've got more references to pull from. I've got more ideas to pull from. And I think more patience that when when a series of sentences feel as alive as these ones do, there's probably something underneath or between them that's worth thinking about. Like it's it's still I start a bunch of stories that I don't finish and you just I just think, oh, they're drab and uninteresting. They're not going anywhere. Mm, yes, yeah. I saw Alyssa Wong recently say she's got one sentence of patience. <laughs> you don't punch <laughs> me in the face in the first sentence. Done with you. <laughs> don't even bother. I mean I usually give them a paragraph. Um yeah, I think I'm better now at laying down my expectations and letting the story teach me how it wants to be read, which is something that kind of a phrase that I've heard people bandy around for a long time but when I read this story I'm like oh that's what this means this is a story that eases you in and then very quickly ruptures beneath your feet yeah in in exciting and unexpected ways as it is called report on the thing and as we have established I'm quite obsessed with the thingness of things Mm -hmm. it got me thinking to what we talk about when we talk about the thingness of things and and what it means and i thought about how to be in love with thingness is to be in doubt at the capacity of language and in particular names to be an adequate vessel for meaning in thinking that it reminded me of one of my favorite songs uh, in the airplane over the sea and there's a passage at the end of that song and it goes But now we keep where we don't know. All secrets sleep in winter clothes with one you loved so long ago. Now he doesn't even know his name. What a beautiful face I have found in this place that is circling all around the sun. And when we meet on a cloud, I'll be laughing out loud. I'll be laughing with everyone I see. Can't believe how strange it is to be anything at all. And that was the feeling I had in the story. And it's a feeling I have a lot. And it's... When you describe the patience you found and in thinking about stories, that kind of feeling is a feeling that can come from patience, uh, a feeling that comes from sitting still and listening. Um, there is an idea, possibly from Buddhism, I don't know, that to understand the universe, all you need to do is sit and stare at a single flower for long enough. I spent some time after reading this story thinking about sanity and mania and who gets to define the notions of reality this story is part of a great wide tranche of literature that sits on the knife edge or examines the idea of how close mania and deep perception of reality is and i don't know if that is where some of my discomfort comes from. But that's also where my excitement with the story comes from, that that feeling of uncertainty, that feeling like reading it and absorbing it is somewhat risky. And I think that the obsession that it shows and how powerful that is, is wrapped up in this one sentence. Being faithful is the act of love contains in itself a desperation that is. So if you've never watched The Sopranos, I'm about to tell you more or less kind of how it ends, but not really. The The last episode of The Sopranos, there's this kind of riff on the idea of this image on a wall. 
And the way it works in Sopranos, these two guys are having a conversation about how they, when they looked at the image, one saw one thing and one saw the other. And of course, one of the ways of seeing the image, the person found deeply despairing and horrible. And the other way the person saw looking at this image, they didn't quite so much see that. And the show famously ends on a black screen, kind of yelling out in its structure, okay, viewers, there you go. Figure it out. Everything is contained in this darkness. And my pick for this week is a story called Cat Person by Kristen Rapinian, uh, which was in The New Yorker in December. Uh, you might have run across it because for a brief period of time, it was everywhere and everyone seemed to be writing about it in the way that the internet gets obsessed with writing about things. And uh, I read almost nearly none of the articles about Cat Person. I did, however, read Cat Person and it reminded me of the end of Sopranos when that black screen comes in because the story in some ways is like being on one side of a text message conversation where the dialogue is going back and forth and you have no real idea of who the person is on the other side of that screen. It's just a string of emojis. The story is the story of Robert and Margot, and they're less than awesome attempts at coupling, emotionally or physically. It is uh, a story told in a fairly extremely detached tone of voice that is at once kind of omniscient, but really not at all omniscient, entirely subjected to uh, Margot's point of view. And it's a wonderful thing to read the story and to ask yourself, how much do I trust this narrator? There are lines like, Robert did not pick up on her flirtation. Or if he did, he showed it only by stepping back, as though to make her lean toward him, try a little harder. We have at once a statement that sounds like a declarative statement. Robert did not pick up on her flirtation. And then an immediate flip of, or I don't know, maybe he did, followed by an interpretation of what happened. So you wonder. And it is also a story I found really committed to its purpose, which is, I think, a kind of relentless and unforgiving laying bare of the way we exile other people and ourselves sometimes to these deserted islands of imaginations. We both imagine them so completely in our head that they almost don't exist. And we sometimes don't give of ourselves to the other person and so strand them in their mm. own imaginings of who we are. And the story is bleak. It reminded me of Black Mirror. <laughs> right. There's two people who so completely fail to think of the other as a complete human being with their own identity, self-desire and and personhood that they well, certainly Margot whose whose perspective we're in she has such concrete thoughts about what is supposed to happen what how she's supposed to act what Robert is likely to think that she seems to move through their uh, let's call it courtship <laughs> slash flirtation um, with a kind of terrifying delusion that seems all too horribly familiar like the there Ooh. are several moments during during the flirtation and their eventual deeply distressing sexual encounter that i was like yeah i i see how she's failing there at, at imagining humanity at reaching out to connect but I also see 
how that is real and a response to the kind of um the kind of way that women are often socialized to imagine that all is needed in um either a sexual encounter or in a relationship is to be desired that is the important thing like your own desire is not what's relevant or important or frankly even allowed a lot of the time the the way to gauge um how successful uh, a relationship might be or how likely it is to happen is purely out of is purely judged or measured on the level of desire radiating from the other person and so the more he seems to desire her the more she's like yeah brilliant this is amazing and the less he does the more she seems to respond like oh now I have to work harder to make him desire me whatever that takes whether that's putting myself down whether that's doing things that I'm not that comfortable with or whether that's um you know stroking his ego it's all about her doing the emotional labor of this relationship in order to stoke his desire which is what she's been told is her value oh, it's just such an ugly cycle yeah. um so again, I just love it. It's just it's just a black mirror. Not just in the sense it reminds me of black mirror, but it's just a black mirror. Nowhere in the story do we learn that she was told that this is the way to think. Right. However, one way is to look at the story and see yourself. Mm-hmm. If, you know, if you're a, a woman, you might think about the patriarchy and the way that you've been instructed. Um, or you might think about the end of Sopranos. You know, I mean, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um uh, yeah, it is relentless. It is, it is difficult to read, mm-hmm. I think, because whatever you see in it, you can feel that it is taking a wound that has been scabbed over again and again as, as humans, as society, and picking away at that scab and poking at it in a way that clearly, because it's spread across the internet, hit people in a certain way. For me, one of the things that I adored is its delightful twistedness Mm. in the sense that what makes fiction amazing which is to put a character in front of us to make us perhaps recognize ourselves in that character to help us empathize with that character but then allow that character to be so flawed to be so interesting as to create their own kind of hell and be unable to escape from it. Mm. And then you feel of that squidginess of like, I don't, I don't, I, I don't understand. <laughs> should I feel for this character? Should I feel like they're a failure as a human being? Of course, what you should hopefully do uh, is be a more open person after you finish the story to think about your own failings and other people's failings and then imagine humanity in this complex way. Mm. There's a line in the story where she, Margot, criticizes her conception of Robert uh, as being a person in which she is a prop for the movie that was playing in his head. And when I hit that line, that's when I, I, I fell in love with the story, to be able to have a character plant in their interpretation of reality or another character such a deep truth about themselves mm-hmm. that it screams out of the page because... <laughs> Through the narration, Robert is entirely often characterized, his emotional reality, his feelings, with words like, as though, as if, maybe supposed to mean this. Mm -hmm. So Robert, as we encounter him in the story, is in large part a construction, is in large part prop in in her her mind in that not fun sex scene 
where she starts to imagine a future boyfriend who will laugh with her about the horrible things that Robert is failing to do. That is a moment where I, as a reader and as a human, I find something so close to the bone about passivity, about accepting reality, about being lost in your own imagination, mm. that partly I want to like throttle the character in the story to say you are failing mm -hmm. as a human being. Do better. Um, but, you know, it, it hits that point. She's imagining another person, another imaginary person in which to talk about her imagined version of Robert. And it's just... Oof. It's perfect. And I think that it is. it demonstrates the idea that it she, feel I guess, feels like she's not allowed to have those feelings herself or alone. She can only have them um, when she has an audience. You know, that's not, she's not allowed to, to not want to be here to think these things are bad until the point where it comes to dramatizing them for somebody else, right? She right. only exists in the eyes of somebody else. Two things that I thought about reading this story, or two other stories that I thought about rather, very, very different. One that shares some of its awkwardness and, and kind of distaste, which is The Jewish Hunter by Laurie Moore. And in that, she, the narrator goes to a small town. She's a poet. She's got a residency in this small town library. And she meets this uh, local dude. He's a Jewish guy who's also a hunter. And they have some pretty awkward sex. And then he puts on videos of the Holocaust afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> like a documentary. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a classic. That's a, I mean, it's clearly it's a classic move. That's what yeah. all the boys are taught in courtship school. But it made me think, you know, after the, after these guys have sex and he puts on a movie with subtitles and yeah. and it's just this wonderful, in both cases, this wonderful uh, failure to connect, failure to understand what the other human being with you might want. And then also failure on both parts to kind of to check in with themselves and each other, just wanting something that will <laughs> that will gloss over the awkwardness and and discomfort yeah yeah i mean another another place where that is rendered excruciating is when he takes her to a bar different from her choosing mm. uh, and it turns out she's not 21 so she can't get in the bar the reason why she wanted to go to a different bar is because they don't card and rather than tell him she just drifts further and further <laughs> back in line until she gets rejected and he's gone on. And rather than call out to him, <laughs> the story just lays it out. She just kind of whispers, Robert, <laughs> oh, it's so painful. It's so good. Somebody else notices and tells him on her behalf. Oh yeah. my God. I mean, you can read this. It's just the blackest and most enjoyable of comedies if you want. Because it, it's, it, is, it's, it's, it, it is hilarious, but it's also, yeah, it's bleak. It it's took me two sittings. I couldn't get through it on, on the first go. I was like, oh, I need to just have a pause and go and like look at a sunset or something. I don't know. <laughs> well, then I think that kind of fits in with what you said about the first story, the one that you picked earlier, that maybe three or four years ago, you just would have thought, why would I even read this? What's the point? Like, it's, it's yeah. so uncomfortable. Yeah, I'm much more comfortable with my own discomfort now. The other story that it made me think about was uh, 
the episode of The Crown that we watched recently where Princess Margaret has her photo taken by Tony What's-His-Face. A.K.A. the sexiest episode of television so far. In existence. In... Yeah. Like, that is the complete antithesis to this story and this in- this encounter. It doesn't contain any sex, any kissing. What it contains is two humans trying to find a way to see into each other or specifically you know for for the photographer to try and see who princess margaret really is and she desperately trying to let him but having got lived a life conditioning her to to be like a a marble cliff face she struggles with it, but as they start to make this connection, you can see the excitement build in both of them. And it is that connection and unleashing of her, the the grip that she has on herself in the world that is sexy. Yeah, yeah. I will, I will say it is not without an interpretation that she is still looking to find herself in the gaze of a male yeah uh, literally at the end yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's right yeah, there totally. in the story um and it is its own kind of wiggly wobbly thing but that is something that we've talked about in storyological it's like a theme that it is not untrue that one of the magical qualities of love is to see yourself in a new way by connecting deeply with someone else mm-hmm. um one of the things this story reminded me of is how painful for whatever patriarchal element however it has happened that you've gotten that double vision where you tend to see yourself through the eyes of other people perhaps more than you can see yourself how in some of my relationships uh it can be really painful to try to connect with someone who is attempting at all times to connect through you to some imagined version of themselves and an imagined version of you. You know, it's like a horror story mm-hmm. on all all levels. And it's it feels like the story picks at that with the way it ends by having Margot, God bless her, um, not a success yet at being an adult, <laughs> decides that the best way to end it with Robert is to not say anything to him, uh, which leads her roommate to stealing her phone to text Robert uh, that this is through but it means that when margot sees robert later she runs away from him in the most dramatic way possible which she has built up in all of her friends mind this image of robert that when she says oh my god it's that guy they surround her <laughs> as described her <laughs> as like secret service and usher her out and after that robert sends these messages that escalate to the most failed imagining from a male point of view of a Mm. woman, which is to call her whore. And you can hit that line and feel like Robert is a bad dude. He's bad at sex. He's bad at everything. Or if you've worked through, hopefully, I don't know. Or, you know, if you've worked through the morality of Margot and and the feelings about, about her and her failure to see him, you can hit that line too and feel like, oh, they're all fucked. They're all, it's just, it's just fucked. It's just, I don't, I don't hate him any more than I hate her. It's just God, God bless you humans. We got to do better. Mm. Beyond the content of this story, I want to congratulate. I want to congratulate Kristen on 
the masterful way that she balances all of these ugly ideas in one story like you're so, I felt so convinced by the the poverty of both of their humanity you know the balance between the shame the desire the excitement the guilt the the kind of not wanting to rock the boat just all of it the way she wrapped in the the pain that was inside of Margot and and her way of understanding herself and the world and how that intersected with with Robert's behavior I I was masterful my sister read it and she came away with a sympathetic portrait of Robert like that's what she saw in it because she saw in him and his behavior not in the interpretations per Mm. se but in his behavior behavior she recognized as someone nervous and awkward and unsure about how to deal with other humans, particularly other humans that don't seem to be opening themselves up to them, mm. and so are left in a black hole of terror because they don't know what's going on. And I think that speaks to how masterful it is. It's all right there. The story is withholding judgment for as long as possible on everyone, yeah, and so allowing them to live. And you know, you don't have to read stories through the lens of contemporary life, but because the story begins with them texting each other back and forth that's in large part the scaffolding on which this is all built it it meant that when they go to robert's home and they go inside and what she sees is bookshelves and movie posters and what she feels is this immediate relief of they share interests (laughs) or at least broadly interests i was like holy crap it's like he's living in his facebook wall you know like or however we want to imagine the internet is reducing us to people who perform for others on the screen as human. Like, look how human I am. Look at all these interests. To be fair, we do it all the time. The internet's just given us a new place to do it. But I felt like it was something that opened up into the story to me, this sense of encountering images of each other to an extent that we've never encountered before. And I don't just mean literally picture images, but I mean text, just two-dimensional representations of humanity we encounter over and over and over and over again. Um, And that's partly why it made me think of Black Mirror, because the story, I felt like, like Black Mirror, ripped out a sense of what it is to be alive right now. Mm. And he sent a dolphin emoji for some reason. (laughs) I've never read a story... Yeah, that better captured the experience of getting an emoji that you had no idea what to do with. <laughs> Thanks for listening, readers. We we continue to not ever discuss all of the stories in the world or even to discuss everything there is to discuss about the stories that we have picked. Yeah, so let us know your opinions. You can hit us up on Twitter. We are at Storylogical. That is story. Like the word. Oh. Like the letter. And logical. Like Aristotle. You can follow Emma on Twitter. She is at E.G. Kosh. And you can follow Chris on Twitter. He's at Kuvols. Uh, if you would like to support us in our mission of talking about stories and whatever else comes into our mind about our own lives and the world and the structures of art, uh, you can visit our Patreon page, which we've started at patreon.com slash storylogical. If you subscribe at the $3 amount, then you can receive Chris's newsletter every month where he reviews pretty much everything in the world. Most recently, I was uh, thinking about my Little Prince figurine and what it means to me. Nice.
Um, And if you are not monetarily inclined, but you would still want to support us, you can find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find our podcast and leave us a review. And that helps other people find us. uh, And as always, for show notes, gifts of an appropriate and inappropriate nature, links to our past episodes and interviews with writers, including our most recent interview uh, out this week, which is an exchange between myself and writer Yukimi Ogawa. You can always find us at our home on the web. Storyological.com. Thanks for listening. Happy reading. You know, one of the defining characteristics of Hamilton the musical, so far as I could tell. Was that it was really close? Oh, you mean because we were in the second row? No, no. It was uh, a real identity crisis because a lot of songs were at least 63% composed of someone's name being shouted over and over again. (laughs) Lafayette, George Washington!